0: Welcome to Messages and More, a podcast channel of Watertown Evangelical Free Church. This channel plays our weekly sermons and other content relevant to our church community.
1: Good morning, good morning, good morning. Thank you guys for being here in the Lord's house this morning. We are so happy You are here with us this morning. Uh, All glory to God and this week was an amazing week. We had rails to trails and we had a bouncy house out there. I had some of my students help me with it. I know Craig and Mary uh, Schaefer were there and also Tom and Rhonda were there. I'm not sure who else helped, but thank you to all who helped. And it was just such an amazing outreach to the community. There were so many youth, so many kids that we were able to connect with and just talk to and see their joyful faces. And I hope that next year, as we spring and look forward to next year, that we can just outreach the community even more and touch them with the love of Jesus. And if you are a first-time person here, we would love you to connect with us. We have Jenny Gilbertson in the back over there by the hello desk. She has a first-time gift for you, and also we would love to get to know you. So just go back there and talk to her because we care about you and we love you so much that we just want to get to know you and get to know you well. As we enter this time of prayer this morning, would you guys please just bow your heads with me as we enter a time of worship? Dear Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you for the amazing sunshine out this morning, the nice cool weather from the weekend. Lord, this time we give up to you, this time is going to be a time of worshiping and praising you. So Lord, as we lift up our sound of praise, let us also listen with soft ears what Bruce and the Holy Spirit has brought to us this morning. In Jesus' name, lift up this morning, I pray, amen.
0: Thank you, worship team, and good morning. For those that uh, don't know me or haven't met me, I'm Bruce Strugzma. I am the pastor here, and uh, we are glad you are here. And we have been doing this series all summer called Israel's Playlist, looking at the Psalms. uh, And we are going to continue in that this morning. We are going to be in Psalm 91. So I would encourage you, if you have your Bible with you, or maybe it's on a phone, uh, to turn there so you can follow along with us. And and I kind of talked a few weeks ago about kind of the idea behind this series was if you were to create a best of playlist for Israel, you know, that's kind of what the Psalms are. It's kind of the story in musical form of their history. It's telling all the things they've gone through. But it also has, you know, all these songs uh, and Psalms by David. And, I you know, we kind of talked about how, boy, he's got a lot of them. And and if you're making a best of playlist of like the 80s or the 90s, you're going to have some artists that show up again and again, and you're going to have some that are kind of not so common, right? And so this morning, Psalm 91, we're going to look at is kind of a maybe one hit wonder, if you will. We don't know who wrote it. Uh, so we, we just have this one psalm. And so I thought it would be kind of fun before we dig into it before we dig into Psalm 91, to kind of play a game about some one-hit wonders. So here's what's going to happen. I'm going to throw—well, and uh, I'm not going to do it. Cher has done all the work on this. But we're going to throw a a song up on the slide up behind me. It's going to have kind of the title of the the song. It's going to then give you one line, kind of a popular line from the song, and it's even going to play it. And then we're going to give you four choices of artist, and you need to select by raising your hands— Who wrote that song? Because we're going to be looking at these one-hit wonders, all right? So these are all one-hit wonder songs. And so uh, here's our first one-hit wonder. All right. It's... it's All right. I get knocked down, brag it up again. You ain't never gonna keep me down. It's from 1997. The song is Tub Thumpin'. Alright, who thinks it's the B 52s? Okay, we got a couple people. What about Aqua? Anybody voting for, okay, what about The Verve? Anybody chumba wumba? Okay, we know that one. Yeah, that one was. It was Chumbawamba, uh, 1997. Several of us were apparently alive then. Okay, here's our next one. Our next one is My Sharona. Okay, My Sharona, 1979. Okay, is it The Knack? Anybody think it's The Knack? couple of hands there for that one. What about Edison Lighthouse? Ram Jam? Okay, a few. What about Wild Cherry? Okay, a few. It was, it was The Knack. It was The Knack on that one. My Sharona, that was their one-hit wonder. Um, shocked you don't remember that one very well. Okay. Um, all right, the next one, 1981, just a couple years later, Tainted Love. This tainted love you've given, I give you- All right, "Tainted Love," uh, "Aha." Anybody think that was "Aha"? Okay, what about "Soft Cell"? Any takers on "Soft Cell"? Okay, Rick Astley. Okay, a few people on Rick Astley. What about "Flock of Seagulls"? Okay, that one—that one was "Soft Cell." It was "Soft Cell." Uh, they wrote "They wrote Tainted Love," 1981. Last one, last one, 1969. Maybe maybe a few of you will remember those days. Uh, "Spirit in the Sky." Set me up, spirit in the sky. All right, I'm looking at Luke specifically on this one. <laughs> All right, uh, Mungo Jerry. Okay, we've got one name, one for Norman Greenbaum. There's a few hands. Frigid Pink. What about Eddie Holman? Okay, it was, it was Norman Greenbaum. That was, yep, there it is. Spirit in the sky. Luke, how'd you do on that one? No, <laughs> But there you go, one-hit wonders. If we were to talk about the Psalms, you know, a lot of it would be by David, but this one, we don't know who it is. It's kind of a one-hit wonder. There's other one-hit wonders. Moses only wrote one or is credited with one. Uh, we, have, we have some others that wrote more, like David. We have the sons of Korah, uh, or uh, is it sons? Yeah, the sons of Korah did 11. Asaph did 12. But here's one that we don't know. We have no clue who wrote it. There's no record in scripture hey this was written by this person and last week we looked at one that was very much by david and very much pinpointed in time right our psalm said hey it's by david when nathan the prophet confronted him after his sin with bathsheba like really specific and there's benefits to that we can start to kind of really dig into what was going on in david's life that kind of influenced that psalm this one we don't we don't have that and it's kind of a different benefit this time the benefit is it's, it's, we just have to take it at face value. It's easier in some ways to put ourselves into the psalm. Because we can look at David and we can go, well, I've never, I've never done what David did. I, I didn't kill anybody. I didn't have an affair. You know, I can easily separate myself from that psalm. But this one, we don't have that. And so it's a little easier for us to put ourselves in the psalm. And our psalm starts with an assumption. And we need to take that for what it is. The, an, our anonymous psalmist starts their psalm with this assumption, verse 1. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. And this is the assumption. This is our starting point. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High. This is this is the assumption moving forward for our psalmist. And so as we move through all the promises and the confidence and and everything in the psalm, we have to ask ourselves this question as well. Where are we starting from? And where we start from is, is very, very important. And I'm gonna just share one more example of why it's important to know where we start from. I'm a big fan of IKEA furniture. IKEA furniture, as, as you might know, is really known for two things, being cheap and relatively trendy modern. IKEA itself is also known for meatballs and lingonberry jelly, but their furniture is known for being cheap and relatively modern, but uh, you know, it, it takes some knowledge. It takes some skill set. You, you know, you get it all disassembled. In fact, I saw this the other day. The manager at uh, the local Ikea is retiring. And so I saw somebody made him a cake uh, for his retirement as a, as a thank you. Um, you have to assemble it. You have to put it together. You get it in all these boxes. And as you're putting it together, where you start is really important. I've made the mistake before of sliding a board out, looking at the directions, going, yeah, this looks like that board, and starting to put stuff in it only to realize about halfway through that I missed one minor little detail. You're right. So when you look at that first board where you start from, you might have to notice that it has a certain number of holes that you need to count or a certain flange that points a certain way or maybe some other minor detail that on the surface you don't think is important. But if you don't start in the right place with IKEA furniture, you end up with something like this. Right? You, you, you start in the wrong spot, and all of a sudden, you have that. You have this chair that, I don't know, I don't know what you're going to do with that. Because you started in the wrong spot, and that's our psalm. Our psalm insists that we start in this spot. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High. So let me ask you these questions this morning. Do you dwell with the Lord? What does it mean to dwell? Not, not visit Not uh, associate with, dwell. Do you live in the presence of God or is it something you occasionally pop into? Do you rest in the Lord? And this is about trust. Do you trust God even when it doesn't make sense? Do you rest with Him when life is falling apart? Do you see God as the Most High and Almighty? These are the assumptions we're starting with this morning. And so if we don't start in the right place, we're going to end up drawing some incorrect conclusions. We'll end up looking at the psalm and walking away with something that isn't as functional as maybe it should be. Whoever dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. And so assuming the positive, assuming that you rest in the shelter of the Almighty, assuming that you dwell in the house of the Lord. We can move on. We can move on with the psalmist. And, and, and our psalmist will start not with the challenges they face, because this psalm is full of challenges. We're going to see challenges from society. We're going to see challenges from pestilence. We're going to see challenges from all around. And, and can't we all relate to some degree? That life tends to not, you know, come at you one at a time. That when things seem to fall apart, we tend to feel overwhelmed. We tend to have multiple things hit at the same time. And isn't it nice knowing our psalmist has a similar perspective? But our psalmist also starts with the assumption that they dwell with the Most High. And with that assumption then, they can move on, not with the challenges they face or their own strength, but they start then with a description of who God is. Our temptation is to start with ourselves. Our temptation is to look at what we bring to the table, what we face, right? When somebody comes into your life and they go, hey, how are you doing? We start with ourselves. And that's natural. And our psalmist, though, is fighting that and saying, it's not about me. It's about who God is. I'm going to start there. Because I dwell in his presence, I can start with who God is. I will say of the Lord... He is my refuge and fortress, my God in whom I trust. Surely he will save you from the fowler's snare and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. Our psalmist starts with who God is. And there are many attributes of God that we could dwell on. And there are many attributes that maybe you need to hear today. Today. Um, There are many attributes of God that were shared in our worship this morning. There are many attributes of God that you can find. But our psalmist gives us three specific images of who God is here. The first one is refuge. And when we think of refuge, often in our culture, we hear refuge. and We think of like, like a garden or a backyard. We think of that place that we go for solace, quiet, and solitude. And that's not necessarily a bad image. But our psalmist pairs refuge with fortress. And we get a little bit different image. We get this idea of a city under siege as a refuge. In other words, it doesn't necessarily mean that everything is peaceful and quiet. We can still take refuge in God even when life is falling apart and chaos feels like it's about to overwhelm us. Because a fortress is a different image. And city walls, and they were, it's, It's. I'm in the spot in Numbers where the the people of Israel are moving in to start to take the promised land. And there's a whole group that settles on one side of the river and leaves their families behind to go and continue with the rest of Israel to take the land. And they say, just give us enough time to build up the walls of our cities so that our our people are protected. And we'll see that as they go in, they run into Jericho and Jericho resists God because their walls are so big and so strong. We'll see Jonah go to Nineveh and they talk about how big and successful that city is because the walls take a day to walk around. And we'll see Nehemiah later weep because Israel is unprotected because they don't have city walls. City walls were a big deal. So this image of a fortress for them is this idea that once we are inside, once we close the gate and the bars are down, we are protected. Do you see God as your fortress? Is God your fortress? Is God your refuge? And the second one is God as Savior. For Savior, we see several images And I think we can imagine and relate to the the trap, the fowler's snare, the idea of, of how many of us have at times run into sin in our life where we have felt trapped, where we have felt ensnared, where we have felt no way out. The harder we pull, the tighter it gets. How many of us can relate to that image? Or how many of us have experienced sickness and disease and felt utterly helpless? You know, you feel really good and really powerful and really really on top of your life. And then the next day you come down with a fever and you don't feel like you can get out of bed. And we feel completely powerless. Or maybe you're facing something more long-term. Maybe something that's persistent. How many of us can relate to that? And we need this idea of a savior. This imagery in the start of the psalm with fortress and pestilence brings about imagery of a war camp. Pestilence was a common thing in that war camp that fortress, that safety, in the middle of all of this feeling under everything, and yet God is seen as Savior. When we feel trapped, when we feel alone, when we feel bogged down, we know God is our Savior, and he can, res- he can rescue us, even though we might not understand what that looks like. And God is our protector. And here we see, he moves to the image of a bird, of a bird bringing its young under its wings to protect them, to guard them. That in the midst of all this, when we feel overwhelmed by life, when we focus on who God is, and we remember that he is like a mother hen collecting us under his wings to protect us. And this is the same imagery we will see Jesus use in Matthew 23, verse 37, when Jesus will look over Jerusalem and say, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. And this is a significant spot for Jesus because he just, prior to this, shouted a bunch of woes over the Pharisees and the leaders of Jerusalem and Israel. So he knows that as a a society, they're rebelling against him. Woe to you because you burden your people. Woe to you because you stone the prophets. Woe to you, but I wish to gather you like a hen, Gathers chicks. And shortly after this passage, Jesus is going to face the cross where he's going to die unjustly. And he knows that's coming, and still, I wish to gather you. And so, this image that we see should remind us that God desires to protect and care for us even when we don't deserve it. That desire to gather us like a hen gathers chicks. We need to remind ourselves, like the psalmist does, who God is. God is our protector, our refuge, our savior. We need to remind ourselves of that sometimes. And then secondly, our psalmist moves on and needs to look at and reminds us to remember who we are not. And ultimately, his, his point, the psalmist's point, is that we are not God. Okay? If that's who God is, we are not that. But in case we miss that, our psalmist goes a little farther. The focus shifts from all of this, he will, he is, God is language to the personal you. You will not fear the terror of night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilent that stalks in the darkness, nor the plague that destroys at midday. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. As we focus on who God is, we remind ourselves that we are not God, and if I am not God— I am not in control. We love to be in control. We love to have things in our hands and be able to direct them, and we like to think we have control. One of the things uh, my wife and I discovered when we had kids number three and four was how not in control of life we were. Nothing because of who they were, but just the sheer numbers. We had to go from man defense to zone, and we had no control. There's only so much we can do but the reality is our control didn't change. Our, our realization did. We have no control. This morning we were camping at a campsite with some friends and I got up early to get here to go home and get a shower to get here so I wouldn't smell like campfire. And, and I'm driving on County Road 11 on my motorcycle and I hit a bird. I have no control over that. We have no, I mean, our, our feelings like we have control are, are just that, feelings. We are not in control. God is. And we can be confronted with that lack of control and we can move to fear. If I don't have control over my kids and their future, if I don't have control over my job and that future, if I don't have control over the interest rates or the housing market or my grades at school or what college is going to accept me, if I don't have control, then I move to fear. And I can be afraid and fear is an interesting word in scripture because we are called to not be afraid. Just because I'm not in control and therefore I move to fear, I shouldn't be afraid. Isaiah 41.10, so do not fear, for I am with you. Do not not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. But fear is an interesting word because we are called to fear one thing, and that is to fear the Lord. Proverbs 1.7 tells us, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And so what are we supposed to do with this dichotomy? Why is it not okay to fear all of this, but we are called, yes, to fear the Lord? And it's because those fears are a little different, specifically in their focus. The fear of the world, the fear that we are told to avoid, is the fear that results from sin and from us thinking we are in control. Right When I think I'm in control and then things don't go the way I want and I turn to myself, I become afraid. Instead, we are called to remember who God is, to remember that he is in control, and to have that reverent, respectful fear of who God is. And all of a sudden, I don't need to fear the world because I know who God is and how powerful and how mighty he is. Godly fear is rooted in who God is, and worldly fear is rooted in ourselves, So we are called in our psalm not to live in fear of the world, and we do that by fearing the Lord and dwelling in his presence. And the image in verse 7, again, is of a battle. Of those around us falling, you know, a thousand may fall at my side. And it's kind of this dark picture of being in battle and everybody around you falls. And how many of us have felt that way? Where we look around and we think we're the only one at school who follows the Lord or we think we're the only one at work who has to follow a moral standard. And we can, we can feel like everyone around us is falling. We can look around and see marriages failing. We can look around and see families falling apart. We can look around and see destruction and chaos and think, God, everyone around me is falling. What is going on? And there too, we can move into this fear system, but we are not alone. They are not alone. And, and we've talked about over the last few weeks, a couple of times Elijah has come up, and I want to bring him up again because after he has this incredible experience on Mount Carmel, right, where he confronts the king and he confronts their gods, and God shows up in powerful ways, and God speaks and burns up the sacrifice. What does Elijah do? He gets scared and runs away. After seeing this incredible experience, he runs away in fear because he says, God, I'm the only one left. In 1 Kings chapter 19, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. Elijah turns to himself. God, I'm the only one left. It's just me. And we need to remember who we are. We are not God, and we are not alone. We don't need to be in fear because we have God with us. That is the message. We are not alone. We don't need to respond in fear like Elijah. It's interesting because what does God say to Elijah? God says, I am with you. He shows Elijah his presence. God is with us. He will tell Elijah there's hundreds of others. You're not alone, there's hundreds of others, but that's not the focus of his message. Because it doesn't matter if we are alone or if there's hundreds with us. The important thing is God is with us. And as Scripture says, if God is for us, who can be against us? For the psalmist, though thousands around may fall, God is still there. Fear the Lord, do not fear. The storm. And our psalmist shows why we need not fear any but the Lord, because our psalmist reminds us of what God does. When we know that God is with us, and we do that by reminding ourselves again and again of what God has done. What has God done in my life? What have I seen God do around me? What is God capable of? Because if I remember what God is capable of, then today's little turmoils fall away. I don't need to be afraid anymore. Like Elijah, we sometimes need to be reminded of who God is and what he does. Verses 8 through 13. You will only observe with your eyes and see the punishment of the wicked. If you say the Lord is my refuge and you make the most high your dwelling, no harm will overtake you. No disaster will come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. And again, a reminder from previous Psalms where we've looked at this line. Satan used this passage when he tempted Jesus. He said, hey, throw yourself down. See, you won't fall. Don't worry about hitting your foot on a stone. So, you know, throw yourself down. And Jesus confronts that pretty, pretty starkly and says, that's not what the Psalm is about about the literal harm that will fall to our bodies. That isn't what the psalmist is saying, and Jesus confronts that. It's not saying that if you follow God, if you live with the Lord, you'll never experience trouble. In fact, we get told the opposite by Jesus in John 16:33. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. So what is this verse talking about if not protection from any and every pain, harm, and trouble? It's talking about what God has done for us in his sacrifice on the cross. We have salvation no matter what happens to us in this world, no matter what harm we engage in, we have Jesus Christ. We have his salvation. We have forgiveness. Romans 3.23 reminds us that all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. All of us have. None of us is perfect. We can't do it in our own power, so we have to have something else. Romans six twenty three that reminds us that that sin has earned us death. If we've all sinned and that sin earns us death, we are standing there helpless. So what hope do we have in that moment? The same hope the psalmist is talking about, the, the hope of salvation through forgiveness of our sins. Romans 10, 9 through 11, that if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. So that is what God does ultimately for us. That is what we need to remember, is that in this world, in all of its trouble, in all of its brokenness, God brings salvation to us. That doesn't mean God still doesn't protect us physically. I don't want to completely flip this verse around and ignore that God does promise some protection in this world, but that's not the focus. Yes, God answers prayer. Yes, God brings healing. Yes, there are times where we've seen people pray, like, and Ed reminded us in his prayer time, you know, we prayed for somebody whose car broke down, and God moved and helped them. God does that. God heals people. But if that's all we put our faith in God for is what he gives us on this earth, we are, we are not giving God enough credit because ultimately what he's done is paid that penalty for us for all of eternity. And we need to remember that that's where our focus should be, no matter what happens in this world. And it's tempting that since we do not see what happens sometimes, because I think sometimes God does move and we miss it, We think of those times where we hit a bird on our motorcycle and go, Wow, thank you, God, for protecting me. We think of those times where the car broke down. We go, Wow, thank you, God, for protecting me. We don't notice the times we don't, right? We don't notice the time we didn't get in a car accident. We don't notice that. We just assume that's going to happen. But God is protecting us all the time. And we think that if we don't see it, it must not exist. But we are in a spiritual world, and there is a spiritual battle going on. Ephesians 6, 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. God is at work, and sometimes we see that spiritual work manifest itself in ways that we cannot deny. But oftentimes we don't. We don't necessarily see it when it happens. I had the opportunity to be in a spot one time where I saw what God did, but I didn't see it, somebody else did. And they told me about it, but I was there. And so I had this opportunity in college to go to, to, go to China. And we went to China to teach English. And we had to take city buses across China to where this camp was. And these city buses had city tires on them, not great traction. And uh, over over there, it was in rural China, when they closed down a rural road in China, they just put a big pile of dirt in the middle of the road, and you're on your own, figure out a different way. So we took the buses off-road with slick tires on them. It didn't go well, but we eventually made it to the camp, and we get to the camp, and we do the week of camp, and the same city buses came to pick us up to take us back on the same roads that were shut down with piles of dirt on them. But this time, we decided to follow the road back as far as we could before going off-roading. And the bus drivers were driving along, and all of a sudden, there's a big pile of dirt. But unfortunately, by the time they saw it, we were on, uh, and the road was on an embankment. So picture a, a city bus on top of a road with steep ditches on either side, and no way to back up, and no way to turn around. So my bus driver, on the bus I was in, decided to just turn and go down the embankment on A city bus and the city bus tipped far enough that you see these steps here I was standing in the door of the bus on the steps I don't know why I was standing in the door not sitting in a seat but that's what I was doing and the door was open and the bus tipped far enough that I switched to standing on the front of the step it tipped far enough that I was standing on this part of the step and the bus went down off and came down and went level I don't know about you, but buses shouldn't tip that far without tipping over. And there were people who stood back. Uh, the second bus didn't come down the, the hill until they saw how we did. And there were people in that other bus that said, Bruce, that bus should have tipped over. There is no logical reason why that bus didn't tip over except God. God. That bus should have tipped over and there's moments where we get to see the veil pulled back where we see God intersect himself into our our reality. And we need to remind ourselves of what God does because it's in those moments that we remind ourselves that God can do anything that we trust him no matter what chaos we face, but we know ultimately that whatever he does in this situation, I trust him because I know he cares about me and he has sacrificed himself for my eternal safety and security. And so no matter what happens, whether the bus tips over or doesn't, I know God is capable. And so I know if he moves or if he doesn't, that he is still there. That's who he is. And our psalmist ends then with what we do if we dwell in the house of the Lord and we remember who he is and we remind ourselves who we are not and we know what God is capable of and what God has done, we respond. How do we respond? It tells us. Verses 14 through 16, because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him for he acknowledges my name. He will call on me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. And so remember again, where we started. We started with the assumption that we dwell in the house of the Lord, that those of us who dwell with him, who remind ourselves who he is, who we are not, and what he is capable of, this is how we respond. We remind ourselves that we are loved. We know we are loved by him. Live that out. Where is it that you are not living out that reality that God loves you? Where are the spots in your life where you're not living into that reality? Push into that. You are loved, it says. But it's also a call to trust. So where do you lack trust? Where is it where you're still trying to take it on yourself? I can fix this problem in my life, God. I can do it in my own power. I need to do it. Where do we need to move into that trust and trust the Lord? And call on him. The psalmist tells us to call on the Lord. And he will answer. What does that mean? It means call on him and do it regularly, not just in those times of trouble. Call on him in worship. Call on him in prayer. Call on him when life is going well because all those times that we don't know God has moved, we need to thank him for those too. So call on the Lord. Join us for prayer here on Saturday nights. Join us for prayer in the community on Thursday mornings. Join us in prayer as a body anytime. Call out to the Lord through prayer. Do it from your home. Do it from wherever, but call out to the Lord. And for Israel, this was a reality that they lived out. And this is where I want us to end this morning. For Israel, as a a people, they had a system for reminding themselves who God is and calling out to the Lord, and they called it the Shema. Shema. And it's from Deuteronomy chapter 6, and the Shema is verses 4 and 5. And I'm going to read beyond that because it tells them who God is, and then it tells them and reminds them to call out to God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. That's the Shema. That's the reminder. Here's what they are to do with that. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the doorframes of your houses and on your gates. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you and we praise you for who you are. God, we thank you and we praise you that you are God and Lord, we in that statement remind ourselves that we are not. So Lord, help us to trust you God, help us to put our hope in you. And God, as we do that, may we be reminded again and again of all the things that you've done for us in this world, God, but ultimately all the things you've done for our salvation. And so God, as it said in that passage, we call on you, God, all the time, when we lie down and when we get up, when we sit and when we stand, as we go about our day, God, as we work and as we play, Lord, may we call on you in everything we do. I pray this in your name. Amen. We do. We thank God for his goodness. And as we thank God for his goodness, we also have the opportunity to look for ways that he is going to move again. So thank you, like Luke said earlier, to all of you who helped with Rails to Trails. We have another opportunity to impact our community. I would ask you to be in prayer for the five-day clubs. If you have kids, you can send them to the five-day clubs. It'll be a great time. But please, as a church, be in prayer for the five-day clubs as we seek to share the goodness of God with our community. Um, so that's an opportunity for people to plug into. Another opportunity to see the goodness of God is by joining the women as they go on the Anchored Women's Event, going to Shamanoff for the retreat. They have a women's retreat they're doing. It's another opportunity to be with those who can share what God has done in their life, where you have an opportunity to see God move. I would encourage you as women in this church to sign up. Lastly, uh, we do have another church picnic coming up August 13th. Um, we are going to be at Baylor Park. Um, we are going to do a picnic where we will again supply the hot dogs. We're asking you as a church family. Um, that's another opportunity for us to just be together corporately to worship our Savior and to thank him for what he has done and look for what he's going to do in the future. We're going to end with our benediction this morning from 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to Messages and More, a ministry of Watertown Evangelical Free Church. To find out more, visit us online at wevfree.org.